Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, welcome back. Eric and Matt here, and we've got another LLP episode for you. Rolling in hot today. Coming in hot. And we are going to be chatting a little bit about these potential food shortages that we could be seeing in the future. That's right. And we're going to be diving into supply and demand a little bit, inflation. Economics. Yeah, some economic stuff. Layman economics. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to get into that and have some fun on uh, today's episode, so we hope you'll join us for that. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our friends at Sonoran Desert Institute for supporting LLP. Uh, They have some great gunsmithing programs. If you're looking for a career in gunsmithing technology, definitely check them out. Great programs, great instructors, tons of financial aid and ways to pay for it. Really, really good people. Uh, You want to learn about gunsmithing, reloading. They are certainly your go-to group of people. So check them out. Sonoran Desert Institute, SDI, and uh, tell them we sent you. So we're going to dive into this a little bit. Uh, I think it's probably noteworthy to go through and define a few uh, of these terms so that some of our listeners and or viewers, if you're here on YouTube, thanks for tuning back in. Also, if you're here on the podcast servers, uh, various types, we're all over the place on podcasts. Uh, Thank you for listening back in. So uh, this is a... This is an odd subject because we're, we're seeing a lot of crazy things going on in our society right now, aren't we, Matt? Yeah, and you're starting to see it becoming this all-encompassing issue. So it started as, oh, it's it's just a very small problem, and then it turned into higher gas prices, which turned into uh, shortages of all types, which forced the inflation. So now the dollar doesn't get as much you don't get as much bang for your buck as you did before. Um, food, uh, ma- manufacturing, materials, raw materials, finished goods, like pretty much everything. And I know we're going to kind of go through this systematically throughout the podcast and hit on different things. But I would say the number one thing that hits every consumer in America that's pretty universal is uh, gas that because that's like the one thing that you use, you know, for people that aren't living in New York that don't have driver's licenses, but everywhere else in America that we actually commute, um, you know, we need gas, we need fuel, whether it's mo gas or diesel. And when it used to take, you know, 25 to 30 bucks to fill up your tank, and now you're spending 80 to $90 to, to fill up that same tank. But the cost of living increases is, has only increased about two per, two to three percent. We're outrunning uh, the cost of living, so you're almost doubled the amount of uh, fuel that you're doubled the amount of money you're spending on fuel, but you're not really getting anything monetarily from your employer or or even if you're like us and you run your own business, you're still charging the same that you did before because it hasn't caught up yet. That's right. So. so I think one of the, the best ways we can dive into this to really bring the point home, right? Uh, we're going to look a little bit here at uh, a really interesting calculation that I've got pulled up. This is on the CPI inflation calendar on the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, all right? Mm-hmm. You can actually type in a monetary amount and then assign a date compared to now, and it'll tell you what those dollars are worth compared to now. All right, so when I was born in 1984... 
giving my age away. <laughs> That's all right. But all right. If I had $100 the day I was born, let's say that my uh, family said, all right, we're going to put $100 in an envelope so that when you turn 18 or whatever, when you're an adult, you can have this $100 and whatever, apply it towards whatever you want. Um, pretty interesting. It takes $261.25 now to equal what $100 was worth in 1984. Oof. So let's change that date, shall we? All right, let's go from 1984 to, um, all right, when we got off the gold standard around 72. All right, let's go to 1970. We were still on the gold standard in 1970, hmm. weren't we? Okay. In 1970, $100 would be worth $699.77. Um, so that's a pretty drastic amount of inflation when you, when you see like you know the dollar's worth considerably less than what it used to be um i believe our government has printed over 30 or 35% of the currency that we've ever printed in the history of the united states just in the last 9 months or so yeah that's true that's scary that's very scary so we're going to dive into some of these concepts um let's just briefly look at some of the key takeaways of supply and demand um, maybe in your own words, uh, let, let's just think of what we think of supply and demand, and then we'll go more of a, of a polished definition. When I think supply and demand, right, I think maybe um, goods are going to be worth what someone's willing to pay for it. That would be the layman's definition. Yes, that right? is true. So, and and that is true. Like, what the what's the worth of the item is whatever someone's willing to pay for it. Just like labor, what is your labor worth? It's worth whatever you're willing to to take for it. Um, so another thing is like manufactured goods. Well, how much is that you know item worth? Well, how many more items just like that are on the market? Well, if there's not a lot of items, if you're the only person in that market space, then it's worth inherently more. If there is fifty items, then the supply definitely uh, outruns the demand. Correct. So it, it's in layman's terms, and I and guys, I know that you're gonna think there's all these mathematical equations and all this science. There is, but to the layman, that's what it means. How many widgets are on the market, and how many people are willing to buy said widgets? That's it in a nutshell. That's correct. Um, all right. So, Investopedia defines supply and demand and some key takeaway points. I'll just kind of give you. a a, a, a more polished example that hopefully will give you an idea. Um, the law of demand says that the higher a price is, buyers will demand less of an economic good. The law of supply says that at higher prices, sellers will supply more of an economic good. These two laws interact to determine the actual market prices and volume of goods that are traded on a market. Several independent factors can affect the shape of market supply and demand, influencing both the prices and quantities that we observe in markets. It's a very roundabout way of quantifying what we just discussed. See, didn't you like our explanation better? It was I so think much so. easier. <laughs> I think so. But there, there it is. Now, um, you look at the Keystone Pipeline. All right. Biden, you know, he was like, all right, stop the drilling. You know, he shut down the Keystone Pipeline. Yep. And that makes us much more, you know, dependent on fuel from other resources. Russia. Right, from Russia. Which, or, or, yeah, wherever the heck we're getting it, right? Well, he's openly, Putin openly said, 
the only reason you guys have oil and fuel right now is because of our good graces. He just said that, like maybe I think right. two days ago. But he, if that's a manufactured crisis, mm-hmm. right? If we can drill our own oil and we were, you know, fuel prices were considerably good, right? Why manufacture that crisis? Well, they claim, oh, well, it's because the environment and it's not good for the environment and all. But look at all the jobs it costs, right? Look at look at how Americans are paying at the pump. So when we look at these inflation, right? When we look at the fuel prices increasing, right? Going from you know, I, I think uh, a year or so ago, or a year and a half ago, we were paying. Well, I think at one point it was like two nineteen a gallon or something, two I, bucks. I think we've seen it into the dollars and like dollar eighties, dollar eighty sevens. Yeah. Like at some point that was pretty much where we were. And at. now we're at what four dollars or oh, more yeah. a gallon. And in some places where uh, fuel prices have always been intrinsically higher, I've seen some fuel prices upwards of five fifty, even five ninety nine a gallon, and that's incredible inf- inflation. Yep. But it's manufactured inflation because of the socio-economical uh, types of things that the government has a direct, you know, hand in. It th- there's cause and effect. There's consequences to actions, and shutting down that pipeline had a direct correlation to why we're seeing these higher uh, fuel prices. Not to mention on the global stage. Now, I don't claim to be some form of an economics expert by any stretch of imagination. I'm just Joe Blow from Georgia here. I'm just the common man here, right? But throw me a bone. The way that I look at this particular situation is on the world stage, we're being made fun of. Oh, yeah. Because what way would someone look at America if, if they go, well, you dummies created this situation. You know, here you are doing business with XYZ and paying out all the money and having it shipped in when you could be energy dependent on your own or independent on your own. Now, I'm not going to claim to know the minutia and finities of every single little tiny decision, but it seems to me that if the economy's thriving and fuel prices are low and you've got tons of jobs and everything's going swimmingly, there's no Econo- or there's no, uh, let's just say, uh, environmental environmental hazards or kerfuffles that are occurring because of the pipeline. Not to mention maybe the perception or what they can make you think there is a perception of some, um, you know, environmental hazard. But as long as those things are in place and working well and everything's going swimmingly and the gas prices are low, well, then why change it? That's the big question. I suppose that's the ultimate, uh, you know, mystery. Well, you know, there's a couple of things with that. Um, One is I think America in general is kind of in this weird place that we have record unemployment. We have record homelessness. We have no fuel. We have no oil going on. We're... All the other countries in the world are kind of snickering and laughing at us. And what is our objective? What is our government's objective right now is to tweet about National Pronouns Day and, uh, you know, swearing in the first female admiral. And these are the things that we're focusing on, not, you know, trying to get Americans back to work and get manufacturing going and fixing all of these shortages that we're experiencing no that i mean to me that's like it's like this weird twilight zone that has become 
normal. Like everybody's kind of just standing back and accepting this. Like, oh, this is normal. Like it's not normal. What we're experiencing, nobody, you shouldn't drive down the street and see people pushing shopping carts in troves. I've never seen the amount of homeless people in the last three or four months ever in Georgia. It was very uncommon Even in downtown Atlanta, like midtown Atlanta, I used to live there years and years ago, you might only see a few homeless people. Now you're covered up in them. And it's it's extremely sad that that's not where our focus is. Our focus is on, you know, trying to appease a, a group of people that don't have any, they don't have the willingness to help America. And we're getting laughed at as a country. And that hurts me. I think it can be best gauged, you know, more about the human condition and human nature than anything else, right? These people that are manufacturing these uh, these situations, these crises, they understand human nature quite well. Don't you dare mistake and think for one second that they're not smart and they don't know what they're doing. But human nature dictates a couple of different things, right? When we're comfortable, we are generally relatively hard to convince to change our minds on any given type of issue when things are normal and comfortable and when there tends to be a bit of a crisis right i think back in the 70s there was a bad fuel crisis where there was a fuel shortage so not only just expensive price but just wasn't quite there like there was a fuel shortage so when we look at food shortages um fuel going out the roof, inflation going out the roof. You're seeing empty shelves in stores. Uh, You're seeing this situation right now where there's all these shipping containers just floating around in the ocean that can't deliver their goods. And and I'm sure you've got situations where there's goods that are going bad, they're spoiled, they're not even going to be good when they get here. So what's the reason behind all of it? What's the purpose, right? Well, when people get uncomfortable, they get relatively easy to control. So the government... Uh, provides a problem, but then they also get to step forward and provide a solution. But unbeknownst to your average person, they're the ones that cause the problem in the first place. So they come in and create this devilish problem and then go, here we are, the mighty savior with the solution. Um, So when people are presented, and, and by human nature, we tend to, you know, sort of close in and go, oh, crap, there's something scary going on. And when you're in that emotional state where things are just very drastically different than what you're used to dealing with, um, you kind of go, well, maybe I am open to what these people might have to say in regards to this issue because I want it to go away. I want things to go back to normal. People seek pacification. They want to be pacified. Uh, They want all their... uh, luxuries and and accommodations and they don't you know they want it delivered yesterday america is very much a have it now society right we want it now we want it instant we want it easily available and when you remove that sort of luxury that we've been conditioned to uh whether by perception or by admission of something being just literally not on the shelf people get into a weird mental state i believe where they'll accept any uh, solution that's offered, even if it's a solution that will enslave, you know, our great great grandchildren. Right? We look at this big spending package. You know, they're trying to spend three and a half trillion dollars uh, that we don't have. 
Uh, oh, well, it won't cost us anything. We'll just raise the debt ceiling. It's already been paid for. Yeah. You know, won't cost us anything. That's very scary and it's dangerous. And it's kicking the can down the road. And the can has kick, been kicked down the road more in the last nine months at a level of 30% of what the totality is in the history of the United States than it ever has. So that's pretty scary. That's a scary concept to think that people are willing to let the disaster be created and then unbeknownst to them with the disaster being created by these people, then you're going to sit there and be spoon fed the solution from the people that created the problem. Now I'm not going to go into any type of, you know, finities over any other manufactured problems. We won't get into that. We're going to stick to the economy, but it's just kind of strange. You know, how often do you see that happen in history? It's just weird. Like what we're seeing right now, historically is a very strange time. And I mean, I'm 37 years old. I know it may not be, you know, super long in the tooth. I'm not 90 years old or anything, lives an entire, you know, life or whatever. But in the 37 years I've lived in Georgia, I've lived here my whole life. In the 37 years I've been a United States citizen, this is my home, right? Never in my lifetime have I seen this level of just wanton disregard for the well being of America as a country and as a whole and as and America's citizens as a whole. Never have I seen that level of disregard. I'm glad you brought that up because I felt the same way. Um, you know, we've never I've never seen this country in in the situation both economically. And you could argue that, you know, yeah, w- you know, we're 37, 38 years old and a lot of this stuff that, you know, we're experiencing now you know, our parents probably experienced back in like the the Reagan and Clinton years, um, which to be fair, it's it is similar. I don't outside of like the the mass shortages, but there was some severe economic uh, issues that were taking place. But I think that was more of like a world issue that impacted the U.S., not the U.S. impacting itself. Um, as far as manufactured crises go. I mean, if you take a look at what's going on with all of the ports of call, like all of the ports that are that are re- receiving all of these uh, containers, you know, what used to cost $2,500 for a container, a 40-foot container from overseas, um, it used to cost $2,500 to $3,000 to ship an entire container. Now, that's not the contents in the container. That's just the transportation cost to get from, you know, wherever, Asia or India uh, Pakistan or wherever it's coming from to come to land in the U.S. was twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars. Well, that took that space became so valuable. Right now, to send that same forty foot container back and forth with materials inside is between thirty to thirty five thousand dollars. So we've seen the cost of goods. Who who takes the the brunt of that is the consumer. The, the company's not going to pay pay for it. They're going to pass the buck on to the consumer and the consumer has no choice but to willingly pay for it. Whether it's a $1 increase or a $2 increase, um, they're going to get the money back out of it. That's just the way business is. There is no business that is for profit that will willingly take that loss. Um, it's just not the way business works. And I don't care if you are an ethical business person or not, that's part of the business plan. You're passing those cost of goods, cogs, you're passing those cogs on to the customer. And the customer doesn't know, it's it's baked into the price. 
So not only do you have the increase in shipping, you also have the increase in labor. The average salary of a unionized dock worker on the West Coast, which is the main receiving port for a lot of these goods, is $110,000. Now that's working eight hours a day on a union, unionized contract labor work. Now the crane operators that move the containers off of the ship and around the shipyard they make on average $210,000 a year, unionized contract work, eight hours a day. Well, now we're rolling over, that particular port is rolling over to 24 hours on operation. So if you're making $110,000 under contract by the union, working eight hours a day, what kind of golden parachute do you think you just got handed when they said, well, we're rolling to 24 hour ops and you're going to get 12 hours on 12 hours off. I can guarantee you that contract just went through the roof. These guys went from, they just, they doubled their paycheck. So now you have, and there's nothing. Okay. So let me get back to that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have a particular trade and skill, good for you. But the fact that the cost of goods, who's going to bear the brunt of that? As the consumer, we are. So if you look at someplace like Florida, Florida DeSantis is openly calling for those ships to, to alter course. He said, hey, come on down to Florida. Yeah, we'll unload you. <laughs> we, we, he's like, literally, we operate 24 hours a day every day. We've right. always been 24 hours. And I say we like I'm not in Florida, but I'm like quoting as if I'm DeSantis. You know, we've been open 24 hours a day, every day. So that kind of gives you the dynamic of how these two governments, inter intergovernments work, because obviously on in California, they are more blue. Florida is obviously red um, for now. So those two dynamics are diametrically opposed on how they operate, both in uh, salary caps, unions, and like how they operate. And one, one would argue work ethic. And you could argue because now they're actually, the union in California is kind of interfighting. They're saying, well, the only reason they don't want, and it's weird because they don't want to work 24 hours. They're fighting this. They say, we don't need to operate 24 hours. Even though you're doubling your salary, they don't want to do it. So they're blaming each other. The dock workers that are kind of managing all those containers are saying, well, if it wasn't for these lazy crane operators, we would be able to clear all these out. Those lazy crane operators that make 210000 a year, they, we only make one hundred and ten. Those lazy guys are the reason that we're not we're in this mess. So it's just like this weird, this weird dynamic of people fighting because they don't want the money. Well, I think you're also sort of seeing some really interesting stuff going on with the decentralized currencies like cryptocurrencies and things, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, and the blockchain currency. And, and that's important, right? You know, the, the federal government is completely afraid right now of cryptocurrencies because it, in a way they view it as competition, right? When, all right, a great example, say that my great, great grandfather or something had a safe in 1890 and put $100 in it. And, or, or let's use a higher amount. Let's say he put a million dollars in a safe. Okay. A let's go back money. to our CPI inflation calculator. All right. So grandpa put a million dollars. That's seven zeros. 
right? Or six yes. zeros. Six yeah. is a... All right. So he put a million dollars in a safe in 18... Oh, it only goes back 1913. All right. Well, we're going to say 1913. And then he passed away. And I found the safe that he put the million dollars in cash in. Uh, and I cracked it open. So my great-grandfather putting the million dollars in the safe and wanting to plan a nest egg for the future uh, so that his family would be, you know, rich or whatever one day. Well now, off. granted, a million dollars in 1913 is a metric ton of money. It's like the GDP of a country. $28 million. Yeah. Dollars, right? <laughs> it's like the GDP so a million dollars might, not be, might be a, a bad number to use, but let's just say you had some sum of money. Well, that money didn't grow in value. It wasn't an investment. You didn't take that million dollars and then now one day it's 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 going to buy what a million dollars bought in 1913. So you actually lost a ton of money by putting that million dollars cash in the safe for 100 years and letting your ancestors crack it hoping that they'd have a nice little nest egg. Not the case. Now, let's compare that to something like uh Bitcoin. For instance, right? Now, what if you bought Bitcoin back in the good old days when it was very, very affordable? Like five bucks a coin yeah, or something like that. Yeah, five bucks a coin. Now, you know, you're looking at Bitcoin being worth 59000 or $69,000 per coin. Mm-hmm. So that worries the federal government because they don't like decentralized currencies or let's just say a currency that does not suffer inflation. There's a market cap, right? If I take a dollar and I just keep printing it, more and more and more, and I just artificially inflate the currency by printing more and more of it. And as they're saying with this $3.5 trillion package, let's just raise the debt ceiling. Well, the problem with that is is now you don't just create that money out of nothing. Yeah, you can print $3.5 trillion. Uh, Sure, you can. You can do that. But does that make the dollar worth more money because there's more of it? No, it makes it worth less money because now you've inflated... You've deflated the value. You've inf- you've caused this inflation with the value of the currency. To the point where you don't just artificially inseminate like <laughs> that, oh that value into the economy. So now, okay, sure, there's three and a half trillion dollars, and you're handing out bags of money like Oprah Winfrey to everybody. And now everyone's uh, you know quickly overnight rich. Like we look at these stimmy checks that everybody was you know causing a big stink about, right? Well, do you think for one second? that the price of goods isn't going to increase to factor in that additional money that's been pumped into the economy. So it's really weird, you know, when you look at the decentralized currencies and stuff to see how much of a splash, you know, crypto is making. I mean, I bought some Shiba Inu, uh, 27 or 31 million shares not too long ago, which is not a lot of money. It was like maybe like what? Ten cents, five, six hundred bucks or something. Yeah, I bought like some cheap in you for you know a decent price. I bought it when it was fractions of a penny. Not even, I mean, just it's next to nothing. And now there's analysts that are saying that cheap in you could wind up reaching potentially five or six cents in less than a year. Now you're talking my six hundred dollar investment will be worth you know possibly up to a quarter million if it hits ten cents a share. So, That's huge. That's crazy, right? But. So, they are so afraid of that concept because they can't control it. So you look at this capital gains tax and stuff, investments. I mean, we don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I, I am not a like qualified investment advice sort of person. Like, you know, I don't do this for a living. I'm just an amateur here. But there's a lot of great folks that you can follow uh, that have provide tons of great advice in, in this realm. 
But I'll just say, when it comes to looking at, like, for instance, capital gains and stuff. So the government wants to sit there and tell me, well, this cryptocurrency that I have, I we don't understand. We don't get it, you know, because they're all 70, 80 years old, and they don't even understand how to use this thing, much less go on there and, and look at at this stuff and really, truly understand what it tru- what it really means, right? So you mean to tell me they're going to sit there and go, well, if you take the risk, you know, that's on you. Oh, but if you make something on it, oh, they got their hands out, you know, so it's on me to take the risk to make the investment and potentially lose my rear end, but yet they got their hand out when you, when you make money on it. So it's this weird area. You know, we got off the gold standard in 71 or so. You know, I think from 1944 to 71, there was this really, you know, relatively easygoing time when we were mm-hmm. on the gold standard after the war. You know, things when, were booming. The yeah, economy money was meant doing, something. Yeah, it was doing really well. The economy was kicking butt. And see, it's just so crazy to look at all of this stuff. All this inflation that we've seen, right? The worst of it has been from the early 70s and on because we've gotten off the gold standard. So the government doesn't like competition, right? They don't like cryptocurrencies because they can't control it. It's decentralized. It's on blockchains. It's a very different animal. They can't strong arm it, right? So I think what's going to wind up happening, and this is just me humbly you know, giving my opinion for what it's worth to some of you, I think that as we see the inflation get crazy and the dollar just become worth more, less and less and less, and when the dollar begins to not be something that other uh, countries are going to back up their currency with, right, or or look at as a strong global currency in the way that it has been for years, I think what you're going to find is the feds are going to go, well, you know what, let's just nix the dollar and we're going to do some type of a government coin, a government crypto that you'll be required uh, to whatever uh, uh, invest in or buy in or convert your dollars into. That's and the, then they yeah, sort of reset the, the clock. Well, that would and be, it ain't going to be in your favor. I can promise you that. That would be the worst nightmare of people that are hoarding cash. Cause that's essentially anytime a country and that, and this has been shown throughout history, that's exactly how they get people that uh, either hold a lot of cash or, um, don't want to pay the the taxes that they're required, they do a mass changeover of currency. So a country might say, okay, well, we're going to switch our currency up. We're changing all of our money and you have 60 days to convert all of your money. Well, now you have a big problem because you have guys that have mattresses full of money that is unknown by, you know, the banks or the governments. And they, what can they do in 60 days all this money is going to be worthless. No one's going to take it. So I could totally see that happening, Eric. I could see them saying, well, hey, we're going to convert everything over to digital currency and paper money is going to be out of circulation. And then what are you going to do? You're going to have all these people clamoring to give this money and then they're going to have a huge tax burden that they're going to have to pay um, because there are some people out there that love to hold cash. Yep, like me, I like to hold cash. <laughs> well, what you're going to wind up seeing as well. I mean, look at look at what the feds are talking about with wanting to snoop in everyone's bank accounts and let the IRS look at every single transaction that's six hundred dollars or more. Mm-hmm. Now they do it under the guise of, well, we want to really see what the mega rich are doing. They claim that, well, the rich break it up into small payments or break it up into small purchases so they can hide it easier. Blah blah, whatever. You know dang well, so they can peek under the hood of Mr. and Mrs. 
America and see exactly what every single person is doing. And it's mm -hmm. a power grab, right? And they know that they're in the death throes of the dollar. And this is a way that allows them to reset that clock to establish their digital currency or their, their government-backed digital currency, if you will. And it's a way for them to kind of really take a peek and get those final, you know, housekeeping things under order so that they can kill the dollar. That's what I think, honestly, in my amateur opinion, I believe that's one of the things they're looking to do. So without going too far off on that line, let's get back to the inflation aspect. I want to discuss a little bit. Um, there's a lot of theories out there. Inflation, it literally is a hidden tax in a lot of ways. So when we look at inflation, we've, we've talked about like the economical idea of what inflation is and, and, and sort of what it what what we see the results are, right? Supply and demand and empty shelves and, and all that stuff. And you have some supply issues. Sure, that's its own sort of thing. But um, inflation always has been kind of a hidden tax. And um, it's it's kind of hard to explain. I'm not a, a, a you know financial analyst or anything. I, I don't know how to explain it in the, in the way that I probably need to be able to explain it, but I will. I'm going to read off of... Uh, so this website here has got a pretty good... Um, explanation of how inflation is a hidden tax. And the name of the website here, it's Investor Junkie. And the uh, title of the article is Inflation is a Hidden Tax and What Can You Do About It? I'm just going to paraphrase a few things and that will hopefully um, get us in where we need to be here. Uh, we can think of inflation as being like financial cancer. <laughs> God, thank you. Yep, they really eased on in there, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just say what we really mean right out the gate, shall we? And let's see, this article is written by Kevin uh, Mercandante. Well, well put, Kevin. It slowly and relentlessly eats away at the value of our investments. Some investors would prefer to ignore inflation. It is, after all, inconvenient where investing planning is concerned. It can take pretty good-looking investment projections and make them look downright ordinary. The $1 million portfolio that you expected to have in 20 years will be worth considerably less than actual real purchasing power. Ignoring the effects of inflation when it comes to your portfolio is nothing short of dangerous. Inflation is the reality of our time, and it's been for at least a human lifetime. And he's correct, right? Look at the 70s, getting off the gold standard. It's been downhill ever since, right? Uh, and for reasons that are beyond most of us, it always will be. For that reason, we need to prepare for it. Even when it doesn't seem obvious, our banking system is built to create inflation and on purpose. Inflation is built into our monetary policy. So why doesn't inflation never seem to go away? Well, mostly because it's part of our monetary policy. It's an unpleasant thought. Uh, government officials and bankers like to talk about inflation as if it were some sort of disease that they were working tirelessly to eradicate, but the truth is the exact opposite. Let's see. Milton Friedman says, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is it is and can be produced only by more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in the output. Okay? Um, and, you know, there's a lot. We'll put a link in the description to this particular article. It goes into some great uh, things. But I want the main thing I want to get on, Matt, here is why it's considered a hidden tax. Okay? All right. So how are taxes and inflation related? First, they both originate from the government. <laughs> Yep. Hello. The government may impose one tax 
and hide its participation in the other. And that's what inflation is. It's the hidden portion of it, right? Uh, but the net result is that both leave people with less money, all right? We look at the fuel prices, all right? If you're paying $4 for fuel, let's just remove what $4 buys, right? A year and a half ago, $4 bought two gallons of fuel. Now $4 buys one gallon of fuel. There you go. That's inflation. That is, you're paying more money for for the same amount of something. So you're essentially, they're giving you less of what they should be giving you for more money, all right? Uh, second, just like taxes, inflation reduces your purchasing power. It's like I just said. Yep. Taxes reduce your purchasing power on the front, while inflation does its dirty work on the back where you can't necessarily see it. This is why inflation is referred to as a hidden tax. Both taxes are inflation, uh, both taxes and inflation benefit government with additional revenue, leaving you poorer as a result. Now, the other portion of this that's important to mention is that, you know, a tax increase or something, an actual tax increase increase has to go through Congress and it has to be voted on, has to be passed. I mean, there's legislation that has to incur. The screwed up thing about inflation is that it can just be artificially built into the overall um, construct of the economy and it doesn't have to go through any form right. of official government, government channel. So it sort of skates uh, the checks and balances of how we pass laws here in this country. So there's no legal pretense uh, that backs up inflation. It's just sort of a hidden phantom in the background sucking you dry. And that's what's so scary about that. Well, that and it seems like it's it's the complete outcome of a bunch of politicians that are, quite frankly, too scared to take any action. So how does how does inflation even happen? It's because they print more money without any standard backing. So why are they printing more money? It's because they want they have debts and they don't have anything to back up the money with, so they just print more. But also, when they have to raise the debt ceiling, there's they always roll it into some type of package that you know nobody that would always make that senator or House of Representatives member look terrible voting against. So what do they do? They say, well, here is our uh, here is our defense spending budget to protect America. And inside of this 2000 page um, bill um, is everything that we need to keep America safe. And on page 1243 of 2000, they say we need to raise the debt ceiling uh, twofold or America is going to go broke. Okay. Well, who would vote against that? Any, any representative or congressman or senator if they vote against that, they're not voting against raising the debt ceiling. They're voting against funding the military and government programs that are going to keep America safe. To me, that's heinous. It is. If you're going to vote on raising the debt ceiling, send it through as its own bill and watch how many uh, representatives and senators would actually vote against it. It's dirty and it shouldn't be allowed. I agree. One thing that I'll add, too, is that inflation in terms of its of its social construct and what we see in our financial system, um, inflation is a way for the politicians to get what they want in terms of raising taxes without actually raising taxes. So yep. they can campaign and say, oh, we're not going to raise taxes. We're not going to raise taxes. And then they can actually not raise taxes. I like your like politician's they, voice. Just like they said that they wouldn't do. But then fuel is $5 a gallon and 
every the cost of everything goes up. So they're still getting the extra money out of you that they want. Yeah. <laughs> but they're just doing it through a much different uh, means. That's a much more difficult for the average person to really see. So once it starts to affect someone at the level where they're going, well, God dang, I used to be able to fuel up for 30 bucks. I could fill my Prius up for $30 and now it's $59. They start to kind of go, wait, hold the phone here. There's something going on. Uh, the other aspect of that, I agree, Matt. Um, I can't stand how all these packages, they just want to put all this pork in it. There's Omnibus. all this black project yeah. money and slush funds. And they just, they take... It is such a terrible situation in terms of how politic, politics and just the the bill, the lawmaking process, I'm sorry, uh, I need more coffee apparently, <laughs> uh, that lawmaking process has become so twisted and crazy in terms of how they do it, and it's dirty, right? Instead of going, all right, here's a bill, we're going to vote on it, this is it, all right, this is what we propose, almost like a ballot measure, Right. I know you guys have probably heard of ballot measures mm-hmm. where, you know, you're going to vote uh, in a primary, you're voting, uh, whatever, you're you're going to vote. And then maybe part of the ballot will have a ballot measure. They'll go, hey, do you want to do X, Y, Z? They'll just give you a, you know, it's, it's super easy. Like, should we increase the tax for this to accomplish this? And you answer yes or no. Like a ballot measure is a pretty direct question, right? It's just, hey, yay or nay, here you go. Your voice counts, right? Why not make a lot of this stuff ballot measures? Yeah. Why not just let the people decide, right? But it's not quite that simple, right? Why do they want to take all this legislation and just fill it full of pork, black projects, slush funds, all this random dirty money that they're putting right there in black and white, right? So you do wind up in a situation where let's just use the Republicans, for example. The Republicans are in a really weird spot where they go, well, if we don't vote to fund the military, uh, well, we can't be protected. So these the, these political pundits, they're, they're, they're obviously quite dirty because they know by slipping it into a bill that has some universal support that their constituents are going to, you know, their, their opposition's constituents are going to look at them and go, well, why wouldn't you vote to fund the military? That's kind of important, right? Yeah, it's so, so sickening. That's how this red flag crap got thrown in on mm-hmm. the uh, on that particular on the military spending bill. Yep. Now, of course, a lot of Republicans came in and said, "Well, we we only agreed to vote on that, considering that that red flag language would be removed from the bill." So I don't we went ahead it. and voted yay, and they promised us that the language would be removed. I from don't the bill. believe that. I honestly, and that pissed me off so bad. Right. Like the 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 current state of our political affairs is such a disgrace. I mean. How can you say on one hand, um, we don't know what's in, we can't read this bill until we vote and pass it. But at the same time, you have another hand saying, well, we vote, we read the bill and we voted on it knowing what's in it, but they promised us that it wouldn't be in there. So which one is it? Is it, we don't know what, we can't read the bill and until we pass it, Pelosi, or we we read the bill, we saw it, and we were we were uh, they made a promise that we would remove that from the bill, Crenshaw. So which one is it? You know, it it, it you can't have your cake and eat it too. It, right. it just drives me wild. And that's what's so scary. I mean, like Thomas Massey, for instance. You know, I'll always consider myself 
a Massian type of guy. Like I, I like Thomas Massey because I mm-hmm. feel like, you know, he really does question these folks on a lot of different things. He's real big on, on attendance, you know, folks showing up and voting in person, like, you know, the attendance being a big deal. Also like recorded votes on everything. Mm-hmm. You know, he's totally about, Hey, let's, let's take, let's vote on every issue as a separate piece of legislation. The reason they put all that slush crap into these bills is because they don't want the voting record established that they support these terrible things. So they put it in a, like some of these Republicans came out and said, well, we support 90% of the stuff in the bill. Right. But you, you accepted the 10% worth of pork that you totally are saying right here that you don't want, but it's not officially recorded that you voted yay for that, but you did. Right. So if 10 pieces of legislation get passed with pork and then there's 10 percent of the crap in there you don't like and all 10 pieces of legislation and you vote yay. Well, guess what? They got 100 percent of what they wanted. It just might have took them a little while. Yep. And that's what's scary. They're sweeping under the rug. So let's get back to inflation. Let's get back to supply and demand. We're going to talk a little bit about food. Now, I know uh, initially I, I had mentioned that this was going to be primarily about food and it is. Um, I know I've seen a lot of photos on Twitter and Instagram of, you know, empty shelves in stores. I've even seen, um, you know, they've actually gone through the trouble to make these like things that they put over the shelves <laughs> yes, to make it look I like the that. shelves are clean or, like a, or, or, or full. It's like a North Korean grocery store, man. It, it's like <laughs> it's a, so a banner that they made <laughs> that they can drape over the shelves and make it look like the shelves are full. And I've seen oh, these these man. memes where people go and they they pull the curtain behind and it's like oh, the shelves yep. are empty. Yep. And then there would be a sign, you know, oh well, pardon our emptiness. We're we're waiting on a resupply or whatever. But anyway, I digress. We've seen a lot of empty shelves, especially in the large cities. Now, like what's next? Like fake fruit in the little things, like all kinds. Right. Of stuff. It's totally like North Korea. So we've seen a huge increase in meat prices, mm-hmm. beef especially. Pork has remained relatively the same. It's gone up a bit. Chicken's gone up a little bit. Oh, chicken wings. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Wing Stop had to rename their new chain of restaurants to Thigh Stop because there's no chicken wings. Like they, they, I'm serious. Thigh stop is the new thing because they just don't have wings to put in there. And chicken in general, um, it is, it, they're out. Like when we went to Puerto Rico, they didn't have chicken. Wow. It was the weirdest thing. We went into a, a, a cafe and they were like, oh, we want this, uh, this chicken. And they said, well, we can only give you five pieces because there's a chicken shortage, even in Puerto Rico. So pretty interesting thing that's occurred recently that I noticed is that a bunch of farmers got together and raised like $300 million in funds to build their own processing plants here in the United States. It's the strangest thing. We slaughter our meat and we send it somewhere else to get processed. What the heck? How does it make sense to move all that meat somewhere to get processed and then bring it back here? It's like, why are you absorbing all that extra cost? It just doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, they've taken upon themselves to say, hey, we're going to bring, you know, bring this part of the industry back here and we're going to create American jobs in the process. And most importantly, we're going to create our own independence um, when it comes to our meat processing, and the way we handle, you know, our uh, poultry, beef and uh, pork and everything like that. So that's one reason you've seen the prices increase so much on the beef and everything. Yeah, so, it has gone up quite a bit. Yeah. And there's been some shortages, right? You know, I buy a lot of chicken thighs 
thighs have not been available. Wings have gone up a lot. So anyway, the point is, you're seeing food shortages all over the stores, right? Now, um, I'm in a relatively rural area here in Georgia. I'm not in the big city. Uh, even my local store, we've seen a few shortages on some items. I wouldn't consider it widespread. Like some of the memes I've seen from some of the city grocery stores where there's just nothing in stock. It's just really outstripped on the supply. My local shop, yeah, sometimes I might be a little low on some of the uh, meat items. Um, I've seen a few things be a little bit barren, maybe a few cans, coffee, mm-hmm. sugar, here and there, but not really. Everything's generally available. I can get in my uh, truck right now, go to the grocery store, and generally sort out just about anything I need uh, without difficulty and at a reasonable price that's not too much higher across the board, mainly only the meat. Mm-hmm. And um, I've seen uh, another meme or, or photo the other day where um, milk has been hard to get. Yeah. And some stores are completely out of milk. Now, I will say my local shop uh, did have a little bit of a time there where the milk wasn't quite at the levels you would expect to see. The shelves were not full. But knock on wood, generally, most of the stuff has been somewhat available yeah. as of late. Well, I'll tell you, with as far as uh, beef and poultry and uh, swine, when you come from a background that you eat the entire part of the animal or all different parts of the animal, you really don't run into the same issues as um, people that are used to only eating the prime cuts. And when you're talking like prime cuts, you're talking like, you know, steaks, um, loins, thighs, wings, um, things that are, are very easy to get, very normal for you to see. But when you come, like I'm half Korean, uh, my wife is uh, from Hong Kong, so we eat a lot of different other parts of the animal that your typical um, American probably wouldn't wouldn't eat. So we're talking sure. um, beef tongue. I mean, uh, yeah, pig ears. So in Korean delicacy, they will actually take the ears and cut it down, and they're very. They, it's uh, all of this is like uh, coll- collagen, so it's like kind of crunchy, but very good if you cook it correctly. Um, blood sausage, intestines stuffed with rice and, you know, blood. And it's your traditional Korean blood sausage. Um, you know, my wife, she'll make, you know, oxtail, which is cow tail, but oxtail. Um, so all these different kind of cuts of meat, you don't really run into the same shortages if you're buying from a, from a regular store because you just go to the butcher and you're like, hey, man, uh, do you have any oxtail back there? Oh, yeah, I got a ton of it. If nobody's buying it. Great. Then I'll take a couple of packs of oxtail. I'll take some beef tongue. I'll take a whole tongue, which looks very scary if you look at it because it's just like, <laughs> like it is it's pretty freakish. It's like this long, man. It's like someone went and cut Gene Simmons' tongue. Yes. Out, yeah. It's like, ah. <laughs> but I mean, it's very good. Like it's super tender. You'd have to cook it a long time. But I mean, it's super tender. Um, you know, all these different cuts of meat, it really gives you much more bandwidth to play with as far as creating meals versus going up and seeing, oh, there's no ground beef. There's no steaks. There's no pork loin. There's no back straps. There's like nothing because that's what everybody flocks to first. 
we st- we we flock to the the alternates <laughs> because right. we know that they'll be in stock. So let's look at the long term prognosis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the indication that I've seen is that food shortages are most certainly on the horizon. Maybe yep. not at the widespread levels that you know some of the folks I've seen you know might think overall. Um, but there will be some food shortages, and those food shortages are already occurring, right? Oh, yeah. You're already seeing it in the big cities. A lot of items are beginning to get much harder to get and everything like that. Fruit, so Fruits are rotting inside the store. Like yeah. you'll, you'll go to pick up like an orange, and you grab it, and you're like, oh, my God, this thing is like just falling apart in your hand. Yeah. Because by the time it gets to the store, it's been sitting in the container for three or four weeks. So. That's right. So there's a bit of that. Now, how can we sort of circumvent this? Now, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this because we don't have much more time left on today's podcast, but I will just say that there there is hope, right? Um, a lot of folks have been um, getting much more back into like pressure canning and making their own broth and stuff and doing like meals in the jars. Lots of folks have been getting back into hunting than what they have in previous years. So lots of folks are getting venison off the land and folks are, you know, buying their own chickens and raising uh, their own chickens at the house and having egg laying chickens, milk cows. Um, not to say that that's a practical solution for a wide variety of different people, especially in the cities and stuff. But there are ways that you can prep on a budget and put back a little bit of extra food so that you can make sure um, over the course of some food shortage that you've got the stuff to sustain you while things get back on track. I mean, inevitably, things almost always get back on track eventually, mm-hmm. right? Whether these situations are man-made, whether they're government-made, whether it's just a fact of nature, uh, I seriously doubt the latter is uh, the issue. This is certainly a man-made problem that we're dealing with um, because they're man-made solutions, Right. All of the meat you see in the grocery store, it's not like that stuff just grows in the wild and you go, well, there's a wild cow. Let me go knock it over the head and put it in the store. (laughs) farm-raised. Right. So there's an entire industrial process that must occur for Americans to have the amount of meat and vegetables and food uh, that they need on a regular basis. And, you know, it's it's quite an industry, um, you know, to partake in. So just like the the fact that we see the food on the shelves, that's a man-made construct, well— um, you know, the way that we'll get over the shortage will be the same type of thing. And what got us into it is the same type of man-made construct. We may not know exactly what that is, but we know that there's a reason for it occurring. Be that as it may, you can certainly um, get into prepping some food and keeping some stuff on hand. Right now, rice is still generally pretty available. You can do yeah. rice and beans. I've noticed in my local store, there's plenty of that type of stuff, dry beans and rice, Um the canned goods have been generally available, right? Um, that area has not been too hardly, uh, too much affected. It's mainly just been like meat, uh, milk, and fresh vegetables yeah. is it's what I've seen. Fresh fruit and vegetables are the number one thing because you think a lot of them come from the U.S., but they don't. A lot of that stuff comes from like uh, South America because they have a very good climate. Um, you think all those oranges come from Florida. They don't. They come from, you know, Brazil, Peru, um, bananas, obviously, Brazil. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a sad, sad state of affairs that we are in right now, currently with the fresh produce uh, portion of our, right. of our grocery. I think holistically, though, uh, one thing I have seen a little bit of a of a struggle on supply with as well is um, ball jars. Okay. Yeah. Lots more people are getting into pressure canning than they have been in the past. Uh, Chad and I did Manly Mills episode on pressure canning deer. 
And we go through the pressure canning process with a pretty good bit of detail. In fact, quite a bit of detail. And videos like ours, as well as you know, other YouTubers that are putting together more videos on the subject has really garnered a, 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 an increased interest in the process of uh, food preservation, okay? And as a result, you certainly have seen um, jars, you know, end up being a little bit hard to get. And I'll admit, when I'm at the grocery store, if I look at, on the shelf and there's only a couple of flats of jars and there's a whole barren shelf with only two flats... Better grab them. I'm buying those flats, I mean, at that point, it's every man for himself. There's only a couple of things left. Now, <laughs> That's right. all right, one time I went in my local grocery store, and they had an entire end cap display set up, jars on it. The prices were fair. Now, granted, a little higher than what they normally were. I think your standard uh, pint jars are probably like, they're supposed to be like ten fifty nine or so. I think the price was $12.10, so not that much more. Now, the prices are pretty affordable. Now, granted, if you went in there and a flat of pint jars was, you know, 25 bucks, you'd be like, all right, buddy, I ain't paying that. Yeah. But, you know, a slight increase, as unfortunate it might be, it's not the end of the world to pay 1210 versus 1059. Uh, that's not good. But it's certainly not the level that you've seen the fuel increase at right, right. now. That would be the equivalent. Look at ammunition prices. Look at fuel prices. Double, sometimes triple. Right. So jars are still a good investment because they have incredible use for fruit food preservation and the prices have not gotten so crazy that it's not an approachable commodity for the average person who's trying to put back a little money and prep some food and keep a little food on hand. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you can do so much with canning. I'm going to actually start doing some really cool recipes and, and doing some canning as well. Um, my wife has a, an amazing chicken lime uh, soup recipe. And I'll tell you, if you guys haven't thought about this, I know a lot of you probably already do this. Uh, we, we have a Costco membership, so we get the $5 rotisserie chicken. We take it home. We pick every single piece of chicken off that carcass, put it in the crock pot, fill it with water, put some seasoning in there. We make a stock out of that. Oh, yeah. Then we add that pulled chicken back into it and put some cilantro, some lime juice in there. Now you take that, can it, pressure, seal it, heat it up, and mm. put that bad boy on the shelf. Oh, so good. Making me hungry. I know. So good. But I'm going to do that. I'm also going to do some, like, uh, I know you mentioned manly meals. I'm going to do some uh, Korean barbecue with some venison, some bulgogi with some venison, some really crazy stuff that yep. I'll... I'll show you, and we're good. If you're interested in learning about long-term food prep, check out some of our Manly Meals episodes. I'm sure Chad will put a few links uh, for you to you know, reference those videos if you wish. There's some great information in there. Um, it's important that we get back to the basics when it comes to being um, self-sustaining with our food and resources. And uh, some things that inflation teaches us is not to rely on the system for every single thing. You know, Look, it's okay to go out and have dinner with your family and sure it's convenient to go to the store and grab you some steaks and have a steak dinner every now and then or whatever but don't rely on that specifically as the only place you get food because you can see how quick things go south and things can get scary right so um i think we covered quite a bit of stuff now look there was a lot of stuff in this podcast we went over right 
We don't claim to be experts. I don't claim to be right about anything. This video and or podcast is just my opinion, our opinion, of course. So this is just an opinion piece. We're not yep. claiming to be experts. We're not claiming to be subject matter experts. We're not telling you. We're not giving financial advice. Uh, we're just simply, you know, a couple of guys, and this is our opinion. So take it for what you will. We're yep. not claiming to... Uh, be I, anything but just dudes with opinions. I never claimed to be a smart man. That's right. I'm not a smart <laughs> man. But, but anyway, there's a lot of food for thought, and maybe you can look into some of these things that we went over on your own and do some research and kind of see where you uh, come into play on that in terms of your opinion, right? We're not trying to really influence you one way or the other. We're just trying to give you a little bit of food for thought. So hopefully we did that in today's podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for listening and or watching. If you're here on YouTube, thanks for tuning in. Yep. Um, also, big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You guys rock. Thank you so much. Go over on Ballistic Inc. and pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt. Try one out. You can support LLP and Iraq Veteran, all of us collectively, uh, Matt's family, my family, uh, directly by doing so. So if you love what we do and you want to financially support us, go pick up a t-shirt. We're also going to have some really great merch dropping soon. Um, some nice beanies, jackets, some flannels, mm-hmm. tons of stuff, and uh, some food commodities. I'm not going to give that away just yet. Big things coming. But we got some great things coming. So thank you for being a part of that. Many more podcasts and or here YouTube videos on the way. Uh, thanks for watching and or listening. Uh, leave us a great review, please. If you're watching on it YouTube, really helps. Uh, give us a thumbs up, like, subscribe, make sure you're following us, click that notification bell. And many more on the way. Have a great day. Take care out there, guys. We'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.